Section 45 of La Sommoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Giessen. La Sommoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Second part of Chapter 10. That evening the Poisson's housewarming was very lively. Friendship reigned without a hitch from one end of the feast to the other. When bad times arrive one thus comes in for some pleasant evenings, hours during which sworn enemies love each other. Lantier, with Gervaise on his left and Virginie on his right, was most amiable to both of them, lavishing little tender caresses like a cock who desires peace in his poultry-yard but the queens of the feast were the two little ones, Nana and Pauline, who had been allowed to keep on their things. They sat bolt upright through fear of spilling anything on their white dresses, and at every mouthful they were told to hold up their chins so as to swallow cleanly. Nana, greatly bored by all this fuss, ended by slobbering her wine over the body of her dress, so it was taken off and the stains were at once washed out in a glass of water. Then, at dessert, the children's future careers were gravely discussed. Madame Boche had decided that Pauline would enter a shop to learn how to punch designs on gold and silver. That paid five or six francs a day. Gervaise didn't know yet, because Nana had never indicated any preference. "'In your place,' said Madame Lerat, "'I would bring up Nana as an artificial flower-maker. "'It is a pleasant and clean employment.' "'Flower-makers,' muttered Laurier, "'every one of them might as well walk the streets.' "'Well, what about me?' objected Madame Lerat, pursing her lips. "'You're certainly not very polite. "'I assure you that I don't lie down for anyone who whistles.' Then all the rest joined together in hushing her. Madame Lerat! Oh, Madame Lerat! By side glances they reminded her of the two girls, fresh from communion, who were burying their noses in their glasses to keep from laughing out loud. The men had been very careful, for propriety's sake, to use only suitable language, but Madame Lerat refused to follow their example. She flattered herself on her command of language, as she had often been complimented on the way she could say anything before children without any offence to decency. "'Just you listen. There are some very fine women among the flower-makers,' she insisted. "'They're just like other women, and they show good taste when they choose to commit a sin.' "'Mon Dieu,' interrupted Gervaise, "'I've no dislike for artificial flower-making. Only it must please Nana. That's all I care about. One should never thwart children on the question of a vocation.' "'Come, Nana, don't be stupid. Tell me now, would you like to make flowers?' The child was leaning over her plate, gathering up the cake-crumbs with her wet finger, which she afterwards sucked. She did not hurry herself. She grinned in her vicious way. "'Why, yes, Mamma, I should like to,' she ended by declaring. Then the matter was at once settled. Coupeau was quite willing that Madame Lerat should take the child with her on the morrow to the place where she worked, in the Rue du Caire. And they all talked very gravely of the duties of life. 
Boche said that Nana and Pauline were women now that they had partaken of communion. Poisson added that for the future they ought to know how to cook, mend socks, and look after a house. Something was even said of their marrying, and of the children they would some day have. The youngsters listened, laughing to themselves, elated by the thought of being women. What pleased them the most was when Lantier teased them, asking if they didn't already have little husbands. Nana eventually admitted that she cared a great deal for Victor Fauconnier, son of her mother's employer. "'Ah, well,' said Madame Laurieux to the Boche, as they were all leaving, "'she's our goddaughter, but as they're going to put her into artificial flower-making, "'we don't wish to have anything more to do with her. "'Just one more for the boulevards. "'She'll be leading them a merry chase before six months are over.' "'On going up to bed, the Coupeaus agreed that everything had passed off well, "'and that the Poisson were not at all bad people. "'Gervaise even considered the shop was nicely got up.' She was surprised to discover that it hadn't pained her at all to spend an evening there. While Nana was getting ready for bed, she contemplated her white dress, and asked her mother if the young lady on the third floor had had one like it when she was married last month. This was their last happy day. Two years passed by, during which they sank deeper and deeper. The winters were especially hard for them. If they had bread to eat during the fine weather, the rain and cold came accompanied by famine, by drubbings before the empty cupboard, and by dinner hours with nothing to eat in the little Siberia of their larder. Villainous December brought numbing, freezing spells and the black misery of cold and dampness. The first winter they occasionally had a fire, choosing to keep warm rather than to eat. But the second winter the stove stood mute with its rust, adding a chill to the room, standing there like a cast-iron gravestone. And what took the life out of their limbs, what above all utterly crushed them, was the rent. Oh, the January quarter, when there was not a radish in the house, and old Bosch came up with the bill. It was like a bitter storm, a regular tempest from the north. Monsieur Marescot then arrived the following Saturday, wrapped up in a good warm overcoat, his big hands hidden in woollen gloves, and he was forever talking of turning them out, whilst the snow continued to fall outside, as though it were preparing a bed for them on the pavement with white sheets. To have paid the quarter's rent, they would have sold their very flesh. It was the rent which emptied the larder and the stove. No doubt the Coupeaus had only themselves to blame. Life may be a hard fight, but one always pulls through when one is orderly and economical. Witness the Laurieux, who had paid their rent to the day, the money folded up in bits of dirty paper. But they, it is true, led a life of starved spiders, which would disgust one with hard work. Nana as yet earned nothing at flower-making. She even cost a good deal for her keep. At Madame Fauconnier's, Gervaise was beginning to be looked down upon. She was no longer so expert. She bungled her work to such an extent that the mistress had reduced her wages to two francs a day, the price paid to the clumsiest bungler. But she was still proud, reminding everyone of her former status as boss of her own shop. When Madame Fauconnier hired Madame Putois, 
Gervaise was so annoyed at having to work beside her former employee that she stayed away for two weeks. As for Coupeau, he did perhaps work, but in that case he certainly made a present of his labour to the government, for since the time he returned from Etampes, Gervaise had never seen the colour of his money. She no longer looked in his hands when he came home on paydays. He arrived swinging his arms, his pockets empty, and often without his handkerchief. Well, yes, he had lost his rag, or else some rascally comrade had sneaked it. At first he always fibbed. There was a donation to charity, or some money slipped through the hole in his pocket, or he paid off some imaginary debts. Later he didn't even bother to make up anything. He had nothing left because it had all gone into his stomach. Madame Boche suggested to Gervaise that she go to wait for him at the shop exit. This rarely worked, though, because Coupeau's comrades would warn him and the money would disappear into his shoe or someone else's pocket. Yes, it was their own fault if every season found them lower and lower. But that's the sort of thing one never tells oneself, especially when one is down in the mire. They accused their bad luck. They pretended that fate was against them. Their home had become a regular shambles where they wrangled the whole day long. However, they had not yet come to blows, with the exception of a few impulsive smacks, which somehow flew about at the height of their quarrels. The saddest part of the business was that they had opened the cage of affection. All their better feelings had taken flight like so many canaries. The genial warmth of father, mother and child, when united together and wrapped up in each other, deserted them and left them shivering, each in his or her own corner. All three, Coupeau, Gervaise and Nana, were always in the most abominable tempers, biting each other's noses off for nothing at all, their eyes full of hatred, and it seemed as though something had broken the mainspring of the family the mechanism which, with happy people, causes hearts to beat in unison. Ah, it was certain Gervaise was no longer moved as she used to be when she saw Coupeau at the edge of a roof, forty or fifty feet above the pavement. She would not have pushed him off herself, but if he had fallen accidentally, in truth it would have freed the earth of one who was of but little account. The days when they were more especially at enmity, she would ask him why he didn't come back on a stretcher. She was awaiting it. It would be her good luck they were bringing back to her. What use was he, that drunkard, to make her weep, to devour all she possessed, to drive her to sin? Well, men so useless as he should be thrown as quickly as possible into the hole, and the polka of deliverance be danced over them. And when the mother said, kill him, the daughter responded, knock him on the head. Nana read all of the reports of accidents in the newspapers and made reflections that were unnatural for a girl. Her father had such good luck. An omnibus had knocked him down without even sobering him. Would the beggar never croak? In the midst of her own poverty, Gervaise suffered even more because other families around her were also starving to death. Their corner of the tenement housed the most wretched. There was not a family that ate every day. Gervaise felt the most pity for Père Pru in his cubbyhole under the staircase where he hibernated. 
Sometimes he stayed on his bed of straw without moving for days. Even hunger no longer drove him out, since there was no use taking a walk when no one would invite him to dinner. Whenever he didn't show his face for several days, the neighbours would push open his door to see if his troubles were over. No, he was still alive, just barely. Even death seemed to have neglected him. Whenever Gervaise had any bread, she gave him the crusts. Even when she hated all men because of her husband, she still felt sincerely sorry for Père Pru, the poor old man. They were letting him starve to death because he could no longer hold tools in his hand. The laundress also suffered a great deal from the close neighbourhood of Bazouge, the undertaker's helper. A simple partition and a very thin one separated the two rooms. He could not put his fingers down his throat without her hearing it. As soon as he came home of an evening, she listened in spite of herself to everything he did. His black leather hat, laid with a dull thud on the chest of drawers, like a shovelful of earth. The black cloak, hung up and rustling against the walls, like the wings of some night-bird. All the black toggery flung into the middle of the room and filling it with the trappings of mourning. She heard him stamping about, felt anxious at the least movement, and was quite startled if he knocked against the furniture, or rattled any of his crockery. This confounded drunkard was her preoccupation, filling her with a secret fear mingled with the desire to know. He, jolly, his belly full every day, his head all upside down, coughed, spat, sang Mother Godichon, made use of many dirty expressions, and fought with the four walls before finding his bedstead. And she remained quite pale, wondering what he could be doing in there. She imagined the most atrocious things. She got into her head that he must have brought a corpse home, and was stowing it away under his bedstead. Well, the newspapers had related something of the kind— an undertaker's helper who collected the coffins of little children at his home so as to save himself trouble and to make only one journey to the cemetery. For certain, directly Bazouge arrived, a smell of death seemed to permeate the partition. One might have thought oneself lodging against the Père Lachaise cemetery in the midst of the kingdom of moles. He was frightful, the animal, continually laughing all by himself, as though his profession enlivened him. Even when he had finished his rumpus and had laid himself on his back, he snored in a manner so extraordinary that it caused the laundress to hold her breath. For hours she listened attentively, with an idea that funerals were passing through her neighbour's room. The worst was that, in spite of her terrors, something incited Gervaise to put her ear to the wall, the better to find out what was taking place. Bazouge had the same effect on her as handsome men have on good women. They would like to touch them. Well, if fear had not kept her back, Gervaise would have liked to have handled death, to see what it was like. She became so peculiar at times, holding her breath, listening attentively, expecting to unravel the secret through one of Bazouge's movements, that Cooper would ask her with a chuckle if she had a fancy for that grave-digger next door. She got angry and talked of moving. The close proximity of this neighbour was so distasteful to her. 
and yet in spite of herself, as soon as the old chap arrived, smelling like a cemetery, she became wrapped again in her reflections, with the excited and timorous air of a wife thinking of passing a knife through the marriage contract. Had he not twice offered to pack her up, and carry her off with him to some place where the enjoyment of sleep is so great that in a moment one forgets all one's wretchedness. Perhaps it was really very pleasant. Little by little the temptation to taste it became stronger. She would have liked to have tried it for a fortnight or a month. Oh, to sleep a month, especially in winter, the month when the rent became due, when the troubles of life were killing her. But it was not possible. One must sleep forever if one commences to sleep for an hour. And the thought of this froze her. Her desire for death departed before the eternal and stern friendship which the earth demanded. End of second part of chapter 10 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey